Thank you, folks. Good morning. Good to be with you all. Good to pray as well for our brothers and sisters in Orissa and for that whole state. They've had a cyclone hit in the central eastern India state of Orissa. So as you know, uh, our brother Solomon is there and we've got an orphanage there and there are basically hundreds of churches called Destiny Churches that have been birthed in the Orissa state. So, but not only them, let's pray for the whole state. Uh, let's just bear them in before God. We haven't heard how things are because all communications are down. So we're trusting that they're okay. So uh, in a minute, we'll turn to the Bible. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You're on the throne. Thank you, you rule and reign. Thank you, you have a plan for everyone in this room. You know and love every single person here. And I pray this morning as we take a bit of time just to unpack some great verses in the Bible. I pray you'd speak right into our hearts. God, we pray for Solomon, his wife and kids, and the orphans, and the churches we relate to in Orissa. We pray for divine protection on them all. We also pray for that whole state. We pray, God, protect people, and let the churches in that state rally at this time when there's a time of need. Protect and bless them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there was a, a missionary. In fact, it could have been my grandfather, because my grandfather was, uh, it wasn't my grandfather, but it could have been my grandfather. My grandfather was a church minister in, okay, the story goes back further. He was in the trenches during the First World War, and he said, God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you the rest of my life. <laughs> so he survived the trenches, and then he became a minister. And so, he went on to become a minister in uh, Melbourne, Australia, in, in kind of Ned Kelly territory. And he was given seven parishes to look after and a horse. He'd never ridden a horse in his life. He was given a horse. And he says, there you go. And he had to go from parish to parish and lead these churches. So that was, that's my grandfather. But I've got another story about a missionary with a horse. And he had this horse, and one day his neighbor needed to get some transport, so he asked to borrow his horse. And he said, no problem at all, you can borrow my horse. Just remember that uh, he, respond, it's not, he responds to different commands than a usual horse would. So to make the horse go, you've got to say, praise the Lord. And to make the horse stop, you've got to say, amen. And the guy looked at him kind of strange. He said, okay then, thanks. And he got on the horse, and he said, praise the Lord. And the horse started moving. And he thought, wow. So he said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So the horse started trotting. He said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And the horse just galloped, just bolted, shot off. And he was hanging on for dear life. He said, wow, that's crazy. And then he started coming towards this cliff edge. And he said, whoa, whoa. And he said, oh, what did he say again? Stop, stop. Amen. The horse stopped right on the edge. And it made that sound like a skidding car would, right on the edge of this cliff. And he said, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Apparently it's a true story. We're going to look at a psalm that's all about thankfulness, all about gratitude towards God. Graham read it a moment ago, Psalm 100. It says, in fact, it's the only psalm that's given the title, a psalm of, for thanksgiving. It says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Wow. So let me just go into the Hebrew here. Shout is like a term that infers something really loud and exuberant. 
Okay, it's the word zbzlillah. Okay, so let's, let's read it again. Shout to, joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. That's better. Serve the Lord with gladness. Other translations say, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him joyfully with joyful singing. Know that the Lord God himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. So we're going to go on a journey through these verses. It's an amazing psalm. Uh, But let me, before we get into the verses, let's just zoom out and look at them all for a minute. There's a structure in these verses. And the structure we see in these verses is the how to praise and the why praise. Okay? So we see verses 1, 2, and 4 is about how to praise. So we see in verse 1 it says, shout joyfully. Verse 2 it says, serve the Lord with gladness, with joyful singing. And then verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. That's the how to praise. But right in the middle of it, intertwined in the middle of it, we've got the why praise. So we've seen verse 4. It says, sorry, verse 3, it says, know that the Lord himself is God. It's he who made us. We are not, not we ourselves, we're the sheep of his pasture. That's why we should praise. He made us, he's God. And verse 5, the why? Because the Lord's good. Loving kindness, faithfulness, endures forever and throughout the generations. It's given us the why to the how. Because if all you know is the how to praise, if all we said is, all right, sing louder, church. Sing a bit more passionately. Then you're kind of missing the point. Because you might end up in legalism, just doing things because you're told to do things, rather than it coming from right from the core of your being because you know certain stuff about God. And you're stirred up about God's, and you're impassioned about God, and then it just can't help but come out your mouth and express in raised hands or in clapping hands or whatever you do. Um, So let's go through the verses. Verses 1 and 2. It says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. And that sounds like... Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Now, in the Psalms, we see a little bit of passion expressed in how we should sing and how we should engage with God. It kind of breaks some of our cultural taboos. In Scotland, the weird thing is, we get mega excited at football matches... Like, yay, wow, they kicked that ball of wind. No way. And they go ballistic about that, right? But this ball of wind getting kicked down the field. Now, I like football, and I go ballistic at football matches. But the weird thing is, kind of like the same people who do that, they, they worship on a Sunday, and it's like, it's like all grumpy. Man, we're talking about God here. God is just incredible. I was chat- we, we had a guy fix our fence this week, and I was chatting to him. He said he's going to come to church. Don't know if you here today, Duncan? No, not here. But he said he's going to come, so you can pray for Duncan. And I was chatting about God, and he was, I was describing what we are as a church, and I was saying, do you know what? I grew up in a church that talked about the most amazing being ever in the most dull ways. And I thought, isn't that crazy? We're talking about God who made this world. I mean, look at you. It's a flamboyant, exciting God who made us. 
and look at the mountains and the trees and the grass. There's a lot of it. And flowers, and it's just exuberant and incredible. It's an exciting God did all that. It couldn't be anything other. Then why on earth would we want to make church an environment that is not exciting? And I'm not talking about it's only for extroverts. You can be an introvert and excited. But it's all about a genuine excitement and passion for God. It's totally appropriate to get excited for God. David, who didn't write this psalm, we don't know who wrote this psalm, but David, who wrote many of the psalms, he knew what it was to get excited about God. One day, he got so excited, he tore off all his clothes and started dancing in his boxers. Like, no, I won't do it. But he just went, he, that's how excited he was. Bet you're not that excited about God then, eh? You can prove me wrong later. But he's just so passionate and excited about God, and that's totally appropriate. And it says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. In the NIV translation, this is a new American standard, in the new international version, it says, worship the Lord with gladness. Here it says, serve. Notice how closely linked worship and service, and it should always be that way. If it ceases to be that way, you're going to grind to a halt. So did you know you can worship the Lord in this church by being in this auditorium and singing? Or you can worship the Lord in this church by being up in the creche and changing a crying kid's nappy. You're worshiping the Lord because you're serving. Okay? Or you can worship the Lord in this church by being in early like a pile of you have been rehearsing in the bands and on Thursday night as well. And then you've been in, you can worship the Lord by cleaning the toilets and putting out leaflets in the seats and sweeping the floors and being in early before anyone else arrives or standing at the door well or serving at the catering team or serving with the youth or going out and handing out food parcels through the week, or being part of the homeless team, or taking phone calls from people in need and then mobilizing people to go out. You know, whatever you do, see it as worship. If you see it as ordeal, as a task, you're going to run dry. And you've got to keep the worship bit of it in the forefront of your minds, not just how you start out, because we usually all start with the right motives. But you've got to keep that as the agenda throughout, and that will keep you motivated. Because when you're doing when you're doing that thing, that practical task as worship, boy, do you give your everything to it, just like you would as if you were singing in an auditorium. So it's good to be in church. It's good to be worshiping with God's people. That's what the emphasis here is. It's not individual worship by yourself. It's talking about coming together and worshiping God as a congregation. That's what it's describing here. Apparently, research has been done talking about the benefits of being a worshiper in church. According to Barna Research Group and the National Institute for Healthcare Research, it showed that church attendance will increase the average life expectancy of your children by eight years. Not that one. No, no, that one is about 10 years for that one. It, you will rebound 70% faster from depression because you're a church goer. The Time magazine in the cover story in June 96 uh, described uh, similar research and it said that heart patients who go to church have a significantly higher survival rate than those who do not. Hey, woohoo! Praise the Lord, Steve. Just keep coming now. Just keep coming. Blood pressure of people who attend church is five millimeters lower than those who do not. I think that's good. Uh, apparently, do not ride in cars because they cause 20% of all fatal accidents. Do not stay at home because 70% of all accidents occur in the home. Do not walk on streets or pavements because 14% of all accidents happen to pedestrians. Do not travel by air, rail, or water because 16% of all accidents 
happen in one of those places. However, only 0.001% of all deaths occur in church worship services. It is the safest place to be on planet Earth. And while you're here, your heart will be better. It's, a great, it's great to come together and worship. Verse 3 says, know that the Lord himself is God. Now, now we're coming to the why. So we've talked about the how. Shout joyfully. Serve with gladness. Joyfully sing. But now it's got the why. Know that the Lord himself is God. So what does that mean? Well, I think he's trying to narrow down our options here. I think he's saying there's one God. I think that's part of what he's saying. He's saying everyone worships something. But the true worship should go to the one God, the true God, the living God. At the time when these Psalms were written, way back in the ancient worlds, there were many gods that people worshipped. There was the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and, and there was, in New Testament times, there was Diana and various other gods and goddesses that people worshipped. And here, the psalmist is saying, no, no, know that the Lord is God. Worship him. And you say, well, Peter, that's that's not really an idolatry and paganism and, and kind of worshiping carved images isn't really our thing in, in Edinburgh. But just to give you a bit of a un- bigger understanding of what idolatry might mean, Mark Driscoll, I remember, tells a story of him traveling to India. And when he was in India, he was really appalled at the overt idolatry that he saw going on, lots of carved images and lots of gods and demigods and all this worship going on in shrines and just everywhere. And he, he was quite taken aback by it. And he was speaking at a conference there, and the lady who, who was hosting that conference, he got chatting to her, and he asked her, had you ever been in America? And she says, yeah, I've been to America. I don't really like it, though. And he said, why don't you like it? And he said, well, there's so much idolatry in America. And he said, you're kidding me. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, well, in America, you, you worship your food, you worship your televisions, you worship your holidays, you worship your cars, you worship your entertainment, you worship your health and your fitness, you worship, you worship everything, you worship your money. Well, thank God we're not in America, folks, eh? Because it's really not like that in Scotland. But you have to understand that idolatry is so much more core than just carving an idol and bowing down and worshiping. It's you placing priority to anything, even good things, above God. Letting something or someone take the place of God in your life. You make decisions differently because of that person or that thing than you would if only God was God in your life. Idolatry is more widespread than you realize. When it says, so that is saying worship the one God, the true God. So deal with your idols, folks. Clear the decks. Deal with anything or anyone that gets in the way of you authentically worshiping God like you should. Deal with them. Then it says the Lord himself is God. When it says the Lord, notice it says capital L-O-R-D. You've probably seen that before as you go through the Old Testament. Capital L-O-R-D. Well, let me tell you what's going on there to some level. It's the English way of describing a Hebrew ancient word for God which is the word Yahweh. And the first time that ever appeared, so he's saying, Yahweh is God. It's his name. This is who he is. First time that appeared was when Moses was in the wilderness and he had that encounter with the burning bush. You remember the story? 
And as he went over to the burning bush, and God spoke to him from the burning bush, and God commissioned him to rescue the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And that was that commission. He went and he did that whole great uh, mission from God. But this is what God described himself as. Exodus 3 verse 13. So Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? <laughs> so I just be glad he sent you, right? What's his name? But we think that's a strange question. But remember, this is a land where there are many gods. There are many idols. So God wanted to make it clear who he was. And then, what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that helped a lot, didn't it? Thanks, God. This is what you say to to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Wow. I love God. He's just so secure in himself. He doesn't have to explain himself. He just says, I am. He just is. He is the self-existent one. He didn't say I was or I will be. He said, I am. And that's good because he speaks to you right now as him to you now. He doesn't, you know, you've got, Moses had a past. God didn't go into his past. He just said, no, no, I am. Let's do something now. So he said, I am. See, God is not dependent on anyone else to exist. He is the self-sustaining one. He is the self-existent one. He is the eternal, ever-present eternal God. Always has been, always will be, just is. And because he is self-sustaining in himself, he becomes the source of all life. He becomes the sustainer of everything and everyone. He just is. And it says, I am the Lord himself is God. So this is who God is. Same God that got the Israelites out of slavery and brought them through to a promised land. That's the God we're to worship. Make it, let me make it even more specific for you, because Jesus did. Jesus, when he had three years of, on his earthly ministry, he had a dialogue one day with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he said to them in John eight fifty eight, Truly, truly, I tell you, Jesus answers, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. It's an interesting interaction with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, who eventually went on to crucify him along with the Roman authorities. But what was Jesus saying? It's very clear what he was saying. He was claiming to be none other than Yahweh, the eternal God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus Christ isn't just a guru or a good man. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is God in the flesh. God has eternally existed as three yet one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally existed as the triune God. Always has been, always will be, just is. And Jesus Christ is fully God, just as the Father is fully God and the Holy Spirit is fully God. He just is. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew he was claiming to be God. He didn't say, no, 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 sorry, I meant something else. He didn't, say, he didn't do that. He just said, right, get out here. And he ducked away and he, he escaped their stoning. So what we're talking about here is this, the Lord himself is God. You could replace Lord with Jesus. Jesus himself is God. That's who we worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse three, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. 
the reason, it was still at the why of this exuberant worship. Why? He made us. Because he made us, we worship him. And not we ourselves. In other words, we're not, we are not our own originators. You know, the problem with self-made men is they worship their creator. They're full of themselves. They focus on self. But what we see here is the Bible's telling us that God created us and we ought to worship him. Let me read you a wee story. Uh, it was written in the, it's a story from the London Observer. Imagine a family of mice who lived all their lives in a large piano. To them, their piano world, with the piano world, came music of the instrument, filling the dark spaces with sound and harmony. At first, the mice were impressed by it. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone, someone who made the mice, though invisible to them, above. Yet close to them, they loved to think of the great player whom they could not see. Then one day, a daring mouse climbed up to part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He found out how the music was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of graduating length that trembled and vibrated. They must revise all their old beliefs. None but the most conservative would any longer believe in the unseen player. Later, another explorer carried out further exploration and found hammers were now the secret. Numbers of hammers dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they had lived, they lived purely in a mechanical and mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, but the pianist continued to play. We're living in a world that wants to do everything it possibly can to describe away somehow or another that there is a God who made us. And yet you can't describe away the soul or beauty or the things that you know in your, in your knower to be true. And we owe worship and allegiance and adoration towards this great God who is so incredible and so adorable. We are not the product of a random collision of atoms. We're not the product even of our parents. We're the product of God. And therefore, the Bible gives us that as our reason for worship. Verse 3, it says, he's made us. Then it goes on to say, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So it's, he, he, he created us. And now it says, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now I'm guessing the Jew who wrote this psalm, Psalm 100's, I'm guessing the Jew would be thinking he made us not just in terms of he created us, but he made us in terms of he made us as a people, as a sheep in his pasture. I'm sure he'd be thinking that was God who did that with Moses and brought us out of, the, uh, out of Egypt and brought us through a wilderness and into our own promised land. He made us a people. I'm sure that's what was on his mind when he was writing this. And we could also say that God did that for us because today we're the people of God through Jesus Christ. So it's not just that God made us. He also bought us. He purchased. We're his. We're his people. He bought us. Um, young lad called Tom one day had built a boat. He'd taken him months to build this kit boat. And he was so proud of his boat. And he, he's taken so much meticulous time and effort to make this boat just perfect. And he varnished it and painted it. And he put the rigging on. And eventually it was finished. And he was so excited to go down to the local river and and try it out. And he got it in the river. 
and for a while he enjoyed playing with it, but then a gust of wind blew the boat out into the middle of the current, and the boat got swept downstream. Tom followed along the bank as far as he could until he couldn't go any further because of the trees and the fences, and it went off into the distance, and he, was, he lost his boat, and he was gutted. He spent most of the day hunting for the boat, but couldn't find it. It got too dark, and he had to go home. Next day, went to school, and on the way back from school, he passed a little uh, antique junk shop, as he usually would on the way back from school, and there in the window of the junk shop was his boat. He recognized it because he'd spent so much time with it and he recognized it was his boat. And he went into the antique dealer and said, excuse me, sir, that's my boat in the window. And he said, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but either way, you have to buy it if you want it. He said, well, how much is it? And he said, it's five pounds. So the lad Tom ran back home as fast as he could. He emptied out the entire contents of his piggy bank, which was five pounds. He gave everything. He came back and he bought the boat. As he walked out of the shop, he looked at that boat and he said, you're twice mine. First I made you, then I bought you. And the truth about God is this, that the eternal God, the creator of everything, the one who created us and who just for that reason alone deserves worship and adoration. He's done more than just create us. He's also bought us because we sold ourselves into slavery by sinning. We became slaves We became alienated from God because of sin. But Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in the love of God, came to rescue us from slavery. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, this side of the cross, we know that we're doubly owns. I guess the psalmist would say, well, we worship God because he created us. But this side of the Psalms, we look and say, well, we worship God because he created us, but we also worship God because he bought us. He rescued us. He shed his own blood. Verse four says, it goes back to the how to worship now. It goes from the why back to the how. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Now, see when it talks about his gates and his courts, what's that talking about? Well, it's talking about the temple. It's talking about entering into the temple courts when you were an Old Testament worshiper. You would go through those gates, you'd go through that entryway, and there you would be in the temple court area. And the first thing you faced as you came into the temple courts area would have been an altar. And the altar was a place of sacrifice. For worship to continue, there would need to be a sacrifice because you couldn't come into the presence of God unless there was a sacrifice made because you had sin and you can come into the presence of a holy God to worship with sin. But the truth about us is we enter his gates with thanksgiving. We have no need for any sacrifice, says in Hebrews 10 verse 19 and 22. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. You know, as you come into God's presence, you don't need to carry any guilt whatsoever. That's the amazingness of the sacrifice Jesus Christ made on the cross 2,000 years ago. Price he paid means that we can walk guilt-free all our days. We can come right into his presence 
with a sense of total acceptance before God. You think, well, what about my week? What about this? Man, I shouldn't have treated God that way this week. I shouldn't have acted that way that, that week. I know. Me too. But you know, isn't it incredible that the price that was paid covers our past, present, and future sin? All dealt with by blood. So you can now come with a clear conscience before God. So what, what is there left to offer? If there's no sacrifice to offer, what do we offer? Thanksgiving. So as we come into his presence, what do we offer? We say, thank you, God. That's better than a lamb or a sheep or something, isn't it? It's much better. It saves Gorgie City Farm. You know, we have to get our lamb before we come into church. I'm going to hate to worship. Yeah, it'd be rubbish every Sunday doing that. But thank God, we, the price has been paid. We can come with a clear conscience. All is left for us to offer is thanksgiving. And it says, enter his gates. Say, enter his gates. In other words, this is how you come. So I don't know how you came today, but let me suggest how we come. See, when you come to these gatherings, in the New Testament, we don't have a temple building. I mean, we own this building, but this isn't a temple. This is just an old cinema. We're the church. We are the dwelling people. We are the dwelling place of God. We just happen to meet in a building. But when we gather as people, that is so special according to the Bible. And the way we enter into this gathering and come together as a gathering, here the Bible's telling us how we should do it. And I want to suggest that from now on, each week as you come on a Sunday gathering or go to your small group through the week, come with this mentality. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. So don't wait for the third song before you get warmed up. Come ready. Come thinking, I can't wait to adore God among his people. And as you come into his presence that way, so be here on time, come ready to worship, and come with an adoration in your heart towards God. And then we just kick off and we're there, we're together in his presence. Now, his presence among us is a funny thing, because we understand as believers, God's with us. Like you can go off and sit in your, after, have a coffee in your living room this afternoon and God's with you then, right? But he's with us here. But there is a difference. We understand that God is omnipresent and as believers, God lives in us by his spirit. But we also understand, it's really clear in the Bible, that when we gather together as God's people, there's a weightiness of God's presence. And it doesn't mean that, ah, oh, I get it, Pete, because like there's several hundred bits of God coming together, so there's more of God in that place. Is that what you mean? No, you warped person. That's weird. It doesn't mean that at all. God's just, God is God. And you've got all of God or none of God. That's the bottom line. But nevertheless, it is the case that as we gather in his presence, in Jesus' name, we come with thanksgiving, there's a weightiness of God's presence among us as we gather. And I just see that right through the Bible. I see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God seemed to do more significant things as people gathered. Jesus himself said, where two or three gather in my name, there I'm there. Now we know he's there when there's just one of you. But you needed to say that because there's something about power of being united in agreement as worshipping people under leadership, part of God's vision in this city. There's something powerful about that. God's there in a heavier way. And partly it's us coming into his presence even though he's always with us, but partly it's also him coming to our presence, even though he's always with us. It says in Psalm 22, verse 3, 
It says, you are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. There's something about God comes into our presence as we worship him. He sets up a throne, comes and manifests his presence. Now we know what that feels like. We know times when we've been worshiping as part of this congregation and we just sense, whoa, I know he's here, but I really know he's here now. Yeah, you ever had that? Pretty awesome, eh? And we've seen times like that when people have been healed without anyone praying for them. I remember being in a, in a worship service where there was so many miracles happening just because of the presence of God, not because anyone was praying for them, but just simply in his presence. And that happens to greater or lesser degrees as we gather. That's my expectation as we gather. That should be your expectation that we're coming. Don't ever take this moment for, for granted, folks. Love being together with God's people. Treat it as something so special and so precious. Plan your week around it. Don't miss it if it's sunny. I know that's like once a year. It doesn't really affect most weeks, but in that one week, don't miss church. This is more important. Gathering together as God's people in the presence of God is so crucial and important. And he comes to be with us and we come to be with him. You know, and you may have had a really naff week and you think, man, the last place I want to be is singing songs. <laughs> That's probably the last thing you want to do if you've had a really rough week. But actually, it's the best thing you could do. Because there's something about when you sing and when we worship that actually changes our situation. Let me just take in a week, quick journey through David. David went through some really major conflicts in his life. Let me read you some of the Psalms. It's interesting. See, some, if you look in the book of in the Psalms, some of the Psalms have a wee introductory statement. It says, this Psalm was written uh, at this place at this time. So let me give you a few of them with the life of David. I'll read the introductory bit, and then I'll read you one statement that he made in the middle of that. Okay, Psalm 34. Uh, this is written when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech. <laughs> it's killing it. I mean, you guys can relate to this. This is so like many of you although you're not pretending. Anyway, it says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. It's a, it's a kind of crazy story in the Old Testament. He was really in a bad situation, and he thought, how do I survive this? And he thought, I know, I'll pretend to be insane. And he dribbled down his beard and did all, and scratched the walls and stuff like this. It's really cool, David. It's like, it's like Graham. And he just, but he says, I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will continue to be on my lips. He was going through a real rough patch and Bimelech was a king who didn't like him. He wanted to take David out, but what was he doing? David, what was he doing? He was praising, praising. Question, could it be that his praising rather than his slaver down his beard was the trigger that got him out of that situation? Psalm 54, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, is not David hiding among us? Right, so David has been, his hiding place has been exposed. And what does it say David did? It's just, that's just the wee introduction to the psalm. In Psalm 54, it says, I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. Okay, Psalm 56. When the Philistines had seized him at Gath, that's the heading, and here's one of the things he said in the psalm, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I am not afraid. Psalm 57 when he fled from Saul into a cave. That's the title. And here's what it says in the psalm. It says, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. Psalm 59, when Saul 
had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And this is what David said, I will sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. It's just magnificent. So here's a time when he was about to be killed by a king. He faked madness, but he was in the middle, in his heart, he was praising God. He wrote a song. Uh, in a cave, hiding from, a manhunt was on, and he was hiding in the cave, and he started worshipping. Assassination attempt. He had people around his house, solid posted people around his house to assassinate him in the middle of the night. It's a perfect time to write a song. Started worshipping God. The guy's nuts. The guy's just, but in a kind of happy nuts way. It's just fantastic. Here's two reasons you should come to church when you've had a really naff week. Number one, because as you worship among God's people, the true God, the living God, the God who made you, that actually he comes and is enthrones. He comes and dwells. He comes and sits down on the stuff. When you've got the Psalms, you've been given keys. And these keys unlock prisons. Just like Paul and Silas, as they were in that prison, and in the middle of that prison, they started worshipping. What was happening? God came down, gave him a key, shook the doors open. That's what happens when you worship. It changes things. Worship actually opens the way for God to do what God wants to do for you. He wants to show you his goodness. He wants to show you his victory. And it happens as you praise and adore him, even though you're in a real tough time. It's a time to praise, time to be among God's people, not time to stay away because you're feeling naff. Time to be here, time to praise God with his people, time to adore him despite the situation, time to adore him over the situation, time to adore him just because he's God with no strings attached. And so number one, you praise him because that changes things. Number two, you praise him because he's God and because he's good despite how bad your situation is. That's great. He's consistent. Life isn't. He is. Praise him. Live on him. Depend on him. Base your life on him, not on life. Life does this. God does that. Base your life on him. Someone once said, long before the devil steals your victory, he steals your song. He steals your praise. And then verse 5 says, for the Lord is good. So we're in this how and why and how and why. That's the cycle of the psalm. How? Well, it's talked about shout joyfully. Serve with gladness. Joyful singing. Why? Know that the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. Jesus is God's. He who made us. We're not ours. We're his possession. He bought us. He is our shepherds. There's the why. Then it goes to what? Okay. Enter with thanksgiving. Give thanks. Bless him. And it comes back to the why. And this is a mega why. It says, here's why. For the Lord is good. The Lord is good. You know the name devil in the Bible is the Greek word diabolos. And diabolos means slanderer. So incidentally, when people are slandering, especially each other among church or church leaders or whatever, it is a very devilish, demonic thing. But the devil's always been a slanderer, and the first one he ever slandered was God himself. And he slandered him in Genesis 3, and this is what he said in talking with Eve. It says, you will not certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, 
And you will be like God, knowing the good from evil. In other words, Eve, God's not saying you can't eat this fruit for any good reason other than he doesn't want you to be like him. The first slander that Satan ever brought on earth was to slander the goodness of God, was to bring into question, is God really good? And you know, you've had that accusation in your head. And it didn't come from God and it didn't come from you. It came from the accuser who wants to undermine the goodness of God. He's on a, on a slander campaign. He's, a, he's trying to smear the name of God and make him out as the one who is bad. God is good. He is good. That's why we worship, because the Lord is good. And because he's good, we worship. You see, you can worship in bad situation because you know that despite the situation, God's good. The situation changes nothing about God. Nothing. Even if it looks like failure, God's still good. And you can trust the goodness of God will break through in your life. And it goes on and says, the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. His loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations just keeps going and going and going. That's the love of God. That's why we worship. His loving kindness is everlasting. Before anything ever was, God was, and 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. He is love. He is everlasting. Always has been, always will be love. You see, God doesn't, he isn't just have love. He doesn't just show love. God is love. The only reason there is love in this entire universe is because God is love. Before anyone was ever created, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have eternally existed in relationship and love, created us. And before we were created, love was. And this is such good news. And we can depend on that love. Bernard Manning, the author, told a story about his friend called Ray. Now, they'd grown up together. They'd shared a lot together. They'd bought their first car together. They'd gone on the first double date together. They enrolled in the, they went to school together, and then after school, they enrolled in the army together. And then they went together to the front line. And in a foxhole somewhere in Europe, they were lying there one night. It was a cold night. They were in a foxhole, and Bernard Mangan was discussing with his friend and reminiscing about the, they're growing up together and their friendship over the years. And just as they were chatting, uh, a, a hand grenade came and landed in the foxhole where they were. Ray looked at Bernard Manning. He, Ray had been eating some chocolate. He looked at Bernard Manning. He smiled at him. He threw his chocolate down and jumped in the grenade. And the grenade exploded and killed his friend Ray. And years later, I mean, this made a a huge impression on Bernard Manning, who came to faith and who years later went to visit Ray's mum. And in discussion with Ray's mum, they talked about his life. They talked about, he talked about how grateful he was for Ray. And he asked the question, do you think Ray loved me? And Ray's mum got off her chair and went over to Bernard Manning and pointed him his finger in his face and said this, 
What more could he have done for you? And in that moment, he says in the book, he says, and I'll read it to you. He said he had an epiphany moment, a revelation. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, does God really love me? And then Jesus' mother Mary coming over and pointing to her son and saying, what more could he have done for you? It says in Romans 5, 6 to 8, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in the while we are still sinners. Christ died for us. So him being good, loving, faithful, everlasting, throughout all generations, has now been signed in his own blood, affirming forever in a covenant that he is good, loving and faithful towards you as you've put your faith in him. So we have the biggest and the greatest reasons to worship this great God. We adore him, we love him with all our hearts. He means everything to us. Let's pray. You're a great God. Lord, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you and we adore you. Lord God, it's so good to know that you are good. We're living in a world that isn't so good, but we thank you that you're good, that you are so good. You are so incredibly loving and you are so faithful. When people let us down, you don't, you're good. So God in heaven, our prayer is that we would be a worshiping people all our days. That the worship would come just naturally from the bottom of our heart simply because you're good, you're God. We're made in your image and you deserve the glory. God, let us be a worshiping church, we ask. God, I pray for anyone here today, God, who doesn't yet worship you. They've never given themselves to you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for every single last person in this auditorium. My prayer, God, is that every single last one of them would come to know you and worship you and live for you.